this summer at Holy Cross, we are diving into the book of Psalms. We'll be looking at the different types of Psalms and the themes that are contained in this book as a whole. We especially want you to learn about how we as believers can relate to the emotions in the Psalms and learn to pray through those in your everyday life. Join us now as we unpack another Psalm. Please join me in prayer. Heavenly Father and gracious God, we bow in your presence and we ask that the Holy Spirit of God would open the word of God to all the people of God. Speak, Lord, for your servants seek to hear. In Jesus' precious name, amen. Amen. Is God worthy of our trust and do we trust him? Is God worthy of our trust and do we trust him? Our sermon this morning begins with a hiking accident. The man was a pretty experienced hiker, but he got a little bit off the trail, but didn't realize it. And all of a sudden, he fell off a cliff, managed to grab a tree on the way down. He was holding on, but it wasn't looking good. The following conversation ensued. Is anyone up there? I am here. I am the Lord. Do you believe me? Yes, Lord, I believe, I really believe, but I need to tell you something, I can't hang on much longer. That's all right, said the voice, if you really believe you have nothing to worry about, I will take care of you. Just let go of the branch. Long pause. Is there anybody else up there? (laughs) It's one thing to talk about trusting God in theory, it's another thing to do it in practice. And the nature of the psalm we confront this morning as we continue our series is one that wants to make sure that we don't just talk about it, but that we actually do it. It is the psalm that calls for confidence and trust in God. It is the psalm that Luther bases his famous hymn, A Mighty Fortress Is Our God On. This psalm was his favorite psalm of all the psalms. When Luther got down, I read this week with interest, when he was going through a really difficult period of spiritual warfare, he gathered his entourage, his closest disciples and friends around him, and he said this, he said, let us say in unison Psalm 46, and then let the devil do his best. That was the way that he coped with the worst situations in which he found himself. And let me tell you, some of them were really bad. One of the stories is about the devil throwing an ink blot at him, apparently. That's not good. But he always found refuge in God, and in particular in this psalm. So let's look at it together and see what it teaches us about how to trust God. You're going to need your text if you uh, if you have a PDA or a Pew Bible or whatever you brought with you. That's fantastic. Uh, we're going to look at the text And I want to say three things about the the overall argument of this psalm in terms of what it teaches us about trusting God. First of all, brothers and sisters, it says something about us. This is a psalm about us. It wants to teach us the reality of our humanity. And one of the things about sermons that you need to realize is sermons are reality therapy. You do know this about sermons, right? One of my professors was from Australia in seminary, and you may know that Australia is not a very church-going country, and he had a lot of friends who didn't go to church, and uh, one of his friends was harassing him for the umpteenth time about uh, not going to worship, and he finally looked at him and he said, Look, let me ask you a question. How many 
places in your life do you actually go to where somebody talks to you for 20 to 25 minutes and tries to tell you the truth about themselves and they actually try to listen to what you say? And it just, his friend just hushed up. He said, it's harder than you think going to worship. It's actually quite important. And all of a sudden his friend who was a secular guy was like, wow, you know, that's, that's, that's actually kind of a good point. We need reality therapy because as, as people left to ourselves, we constantly fall into self-deception. That is the nature of the sin with, have, whom, with which we have to do. And this sin especially binds itself to us as Western people in the 21st century in this illusion about how much control we have of our lives. You don't have to go any farther than the advertising industry, which is determined through its propaganda to teach you that you are in charge of your life. Just think of something like uh, Microsoft, right? Where do you want to go today, says the ad. It's just wonderfully hypnotic, right? Because you are in charge of your life, right? So get up and get away to McDonald's, right? Because, and weekends, by the way, were made for Michelob, right? And we all, we all know these things because we're in charge and we get to decide and it's all about the consumer and the consumer choice and it's all about us. But the Bible has a very, very different way of looking at the world. Ask yourself this question. What's the biggest contrast between the century in which you and I find ourselves and the three previous centuries, 17th, 18th, and 19th? I'll tell you what it is. It's this exact point. It's that if you go to those centuries and you look at the people, they have an acute awareness of their vulnerability. Guess why? In 1800, the average life expectancy was about 32. In in 1900, it was about 40 to 45. If you believe her, Gail Shee says one out of every three women born in this country is going to live to be 100. We put people away in nursing homes. We use modern technology and we hypnotize ourselves into believing that we're not going to die. Because we don't need anything. We're in charge of the world. We're in charge of our destiny. Someone has said the economy will allow us to buy anything. Technology will allow us to do anything. And our knowledge culture will allow us to know anything. It's hypnotizing this stuff. But this psalm is very determined to to give us another path. Look at your text. It says this. Newsflash, you heard it here first. You ready? God is God and we are not. Let me just, so we all stay together. Let me say that again. God is God and we are not. You can actually share that with your friends this week. If you want, you can blame it on me. You are a creature. You are dependent. You are vulnerable. You are vulnerable to disease. You need food. If you take a human baby and leave it exposed when it's first born and don't give it any care, it dies very, very quickly. I was interested to learn as a young father that even the muscles on the neck need to be held and and develop early in, in a number of cases just because they're not sometimes entirely fully developed. So utterly dependent are we on those around us when we're born as human beings. And it doesn't change when we get to be adults. This psalm again and again and again, look at your text, is determined to get us to understand how vulnerable, small, contingent, and dependent we are. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Now, let's take the words one at a time. First of all, that word refuge is a word that means shelter, and it's used in Isaiah in a storm or in a rainstorm. So at a basic level, we need shelter. We are dependent in that state. That that word strength is a word that's used of might. It's used of a crocodile in 
Job chapter 41. We don't have the strength within ourselves to do all that God's called us to do every day. We need help. We are dependent in that strength. We need exercise. You don't even take, brothers and sisters, a single breath in your life unless God allows you to do it. So utterly dependent are you on God. And we need, look at your text, Do you see it there in verse 1? Help. What a wonderful word that is in Hebrew. Etzer, which is the word in Genesis for help meet. It's the word that's used for Eve when she's presented to Adam as one alongside him. It's meant to get us to think about the fact that we're actually married to God. In the Old Testament, Yahweh is the husband of his bride, Israel. For us as Christians, you and I are the bride of Christ. You do know, you're going to hear a lot of C.S. Lewis references from me, sorry, in advance. Uh, Lewis, one of his wonderful quips is, with regard to God, we're all feminine. It's a great quip. We're all married to Christ. But think of it for a second. You need God so much that you need God to be a helpmeet. I love doing weddings. They always blow people away. And I love the moment when they say the vows because the people wed each other in our presence really is what happens. And when you say to have and to hold from this day forward, for better, for worse, for richer, for poor, in sickness and in health, this is my solemn vow. You see a you know, 25-year-old, and if you watch carefully, and I get usually when you do a wedding, get a really good seat. You, but, but I mean, people, you actually watch people start, they start into it, and they, it's by the time they get to the end, they're actually kind of in awe of what they're actually saying. Because how can you know? I always think of this when I do a wedding. How in the world can you possibly know what the implications of that vow are 20 and 30 and 40 years forward? One of my South Carolina heroes, Robertson McQuilkin, who was the president of Columbia International University, his wife got Alzheimer's. He left the presidency of Columbia International University to stay home and take care of his wife. And when they asked him why, he said, I took a vow. I took a vow. Do you really believe that decades and decades, and it was almost four plus decades in his case, before when he said his vows, he had any idea that he would one day be living them out, taking care of his wife with Alzheimer's at home and giving up his job? No way. But he said the vows. And we say the vows. And what this text is saying is God says these vows to us. And if you if you say that to another person, you're saying you're going to give them a lot of help. But you're also saying they need a lot of help. And God is our helpmeet because we need a lot of help. And then there's that fourth word, which I absolutely love, tsara, which is translated trouble. Sometimes in other translations, times of trouble. It means in Hebrew literally tightness. And it is the word from which you and I get our English word, stress. To be a human being is to experience stress. And stress is very easily experienced, but it's not easily understood. I spent a lot of my early ministry dealing with stress, but not understanding it. And then I came across the work of a Canadian doctor named Hans Sele, who spent his life, he's a Canadian doctor, dedicated to the research of stress. He had a one-sentence definition for stress. And when I first came across it, I thought, nah, too, too easy. And the more I looked at it and played with it, I realized, this is, this is just absolutely brilliant. Here's what he said. Stress is the feeling of having no options. And I just want you to think about it for a second. It's, it's deceptively powerful. If you're in a situation, you may have options, but if you can't see them, you're stressed. It's the feeling of human stuckness. 
And the more stuck you feel and the less options you think you have, the more tightness you have. And this is the word. God is a very present help in the midst of tightness, in the midst of stress, because we get in situations and make mountains out of molehills, and there may not, there may be tons of options in some cases. It must be maybe ludicrous, and other people are looking at us saying, "Why are you so stressed out about that?" But we don't see the options, and we're stressed. It is a constant refrain. I'm only, I just did one verse, and I've said to you that you need shelter, strength, help, and you you're go through periods of tightness. And I only did one verse. Does that sound like needy people to you? No wonder Jesus starts the Sermon on the Mount by saying, blessed are the poor in spirit. And J.B. Phillips translates it, blessed are those who know their need of God. And did you know that the Beatitudes are written in order? You actually can't start in earnest the Christian life without realizing your poverty of spirit. So think of that verse and translate it this way. Blessed are those who know their need of God. Really know it. People who, if they don't have God, are not going to survive. That's the psalmist's perspective. I think of Psalm 63, verse 1. O God, you are my God, I seek you. My soul thirsts for you, my flesh faints for you, as in a dry and weary land where no water is. And when I first learned that verse, it was one thing, and then when I went to the Holy Land, and I got just a little sense of how dry, dry is over the Holy Land, I realized it was even more powerful. Than, when, when you're thirsty, and you're in the Masada, and over in the Suez, and the desert over there, you need water badly, or you won't make it. And the psalmist says, I need God more than I need water. That's what's being described. All right, so I've been over backwards to say some, simply one thing. We are dependent, we are creatures, we are needy, we are contingent, we need help. You all with me? Just as we go flying by, here's your Flannery O'Connor for the morning. I believe that the basic experience of everyone is the experience of human limitation. From one of the most profound southern writers of all time. I believe that the basic experience of everyone is the experience of human limitation. I looked up one of my favorite prayers this week, the 19th century children's prayer. Children in this country prayed this prayer all over the United States. These are children now, and they memorized it. It's very well known. You can find it in a book like the New England Primer. Listen to what they prayed. Very simple. It's in Engelbert Humperdinck's opera, Hansel and Gretel, in a beautiful version. Now I lay me down to sleep. I pray the Lord my soul to keep. If I should die before I wake, I pray the Lord my soul to take. A children's prayer, which acknowledges humility, dependence, and even as a child, the possibility of their own demise in a prayer. Have we gone forward in the 20th century where children in the West mostly don't pray prayers like that? Or have we gone backward? Just just asking. One more quick observation about this, and I have to say this because of the climate in which we find ourselves. Wherever we are, brothers and sisters, we are coming out of COVID, whatever that means. And what you need to know in relation to this first point I'm trying to make this morning is that it's very, very important that you understand that we are in a time of a terrible intellectual trap, which is what? I appreciate you asking. It's this. 
If you look around, if you watch what people are saying, they're all saying the same thing. Thank goodness COVID is over or mostly over or whatever it is that we're entering into. Now we can go back to normal. New York Magazine's front cover story in June was FOMO. Do you know about FOMO? Fear of missing out. And the whole article is about New York where my father grew up, where my son now lives. So I have a tremendous bias toward following New York. Everybody wants to go to the next restaurant. Thank God Broadway's opening. You can go to Mets games and Yankee games. It's all back to normal. Another other words, we're not vulnerable. We're back in charge. Thank God. <laughs> and have you got the idea of what's happened? COVID reminded us that we're vulnerable. We could get disease. We could actually die or get sick. But now we're back to normal when we don't get disease and we don't die and we don't get... Wait, wait, what? There's a problem. That wasn't abnormal and now we're back to normal. Actually, COVID was teaching us the way things are all the time anyway. Don't fall for the trap. Things are not returning to normal. If normal is FOMO, and you are in charge of the universe, and you have it your way, and weekends are made for Michelob, and it's all about you and the next restaurant. That's not the life of a fulfilled servant of God that God wants for his people. We were dependent and vulnerable then. Newsflash, we are dependent and vulnerable now. Don't fall for the lie. Y'all with me? Two. It's about us, but it's most especially about God. This psalm is majestic in its effort to talk about the greatness, the majesty, the glory, the holiness, and the power of God. And it does it in three ways. It talks about the Lord as the Lord of history. It talks about the Lord as the Lord of creation. And it talks about the Lord as the protector and the shepherd of his people, and in particular, his city, Jerusalem. Let me say a word about each of them. First of all, The Lord with whom we have to do is the Lord of creation. Look at verse 2. Therefore we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea. This is another place where the 19th and 18th century have a, a, a positive perspective relative to ours. They felt vulnerable to the whims of nature because they had a sense of the power of nature. If you go back to 19th century and you have boll weevils in your farm, your crop gets wiped out and you don't have pesticides. There's nothing you can do. There's a tremendous sense of vulnerability that's part of life. You get to the 20th century and we think we're fine. No, 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 no. Nature is there, brothers and sisters, to teach us as a theater of the glory of God. And part of what it means to be a Christian is to go out into nature and to stop and look at it and say, this is the creation. What does it mean that it tells me about the character of the creator behind it. One of my heroes, Clive Kilby, who taught a whole generation about C.S. Lewis at Wheaton College, one of his earliest assignments for his students was this. You've got to brace yourself. Now, this is an English teacher, right, in one of the premier Christian colleges. He sent his students into a field. I'm not kidding. I'm not making this up. They had to lie down for an hour, and here's what they had to do. Listen. That was the assignment. I'm, I'm not there. I've run into Christians 30 years later who still are talking about their experience on that day. There were bugs they saw, birds they saw, planes they heard, trees they heard, birds that were different colors, songs of birds, all sorts of stuff that was happening all in and around sort of greater Illinois and Chicago where they weren't didn't have a clue what was happening. They weren't dealing with reality. They weren't dealing with the depth of creation. I hope you get a chance to visit the Grand Canyon. It's a great experience if you haven't had it. My brother went there first, and I was glad that he gave me advice when I did. He said, Kendall, when you get there, you get out of your car, and you're there. 
I had no idea at the time what he was talking about till I went. And it's really true. It's, it's really shocking. You get out of your car and you're there. And it's this, this, this incredible, magnificent, uh, canyon that just goes on and on this water over all this time and all the colors and all the, uh, incredible shapes and all the diverse action and the juxtapositions. And we spent the whole day there and we got to the edge of the, of the North Rim at the end of the day. And there was a sign. I, w- I wasn't ready for this. I'd already had, you know, more than I could possibly take in. And here's what the sign said. What a sign. It seemed too great a statement even for nature to make. And I, I spent the whole day at the Grand Canyon. I sat there, I looked at that sign, I thought, wow. Exactly. Well, we're talking about the God of supernature. So if you look at a mountain, if you go out and you look at the stars, if you think about what the low country teaches you about creation, you just take a boat and you go into one of these inner streams and you watch these hordes of hermit crabs along the, the, the bank just go as if, as if they're giving you heed that you're passing their area. And they just want to say hi and they want to take refuge back in the mud. Just these teeming creatures. And you think of John 1, in him was life. And the life was the light of the world, and life was the source of all life. In him was life, including hermit crabs. And you think about the diversity of creation and the greatness of creation and all that's involved in creation, and the God who made the mountains and the foam and the oceans and all the awesomeness that we experience is bigger than that. Which means what? It means that when Jeremiah prays in Jeremiah 32, he prays a prayer that should humble all of us. Here's what he prays. You can look it up later. It starts at verse 4. It's not going well for Jeremiah. Here's what he says. He said, Oh, Lord God, listen to this. You created the heavens and the earth by the power of your outstretched hand. Nothing is too difficult for you. That's the way he starts his prayer. Where did he get a sense of the great? You created the heavens and the earth. This is from a person way back then. You realize you and I have a huge advantage over them in terms of the greatness of God because we know about the vast reaches of interstellar space and we know about microscopic activity and microscopic things like quarks and neutrinos and how much time do you have? We know it goes way farther up than our ancestors knew and we know that it goes way farther down than our ancestors knew and God made it all in all of its complexity and diversity. What does that say about his greatness? Second, he's the Lord of history. He makes wars to cease. Nations rise, but nations also fall. I am exalted among the nations, verse 10. I make wars to cease, verse 9. The nations rage, verse 6. The kingdoms totter, he utters his voice, and that's the end of that. What do you learn when you study history about nations? Well, if you study it carefully, if you look at the West and you start with Europe and you go to the 17th century, it's Spain that's at the center of the world. And you go to the 18th century and it's France and Louis the Fourteenth and La Loi C'est Moi. And it's all France all the time. And then you get to the 19th century and there she is in all of her glory, Queen Victoria, and you get the Commonwealth and Britain. And then you get to the 20th century and it's America. And oh, by the way, just while we're talking about this, you do realize the implications of that, right? Nations rise, but nations fall. Last time I I thought about it or looked at the paper, Spain wasn't featuring very much. It does a little bit in Europe. Not in American papers. France really doesn't. Britain doesn't really. 
so much for soccer and the queen every once in a while, but not, not really. But does it follow that since the 20th century was the American century, that therefore everybody in heaven speaks English and America's at the center of history? No, if nations rise and fall, we're contingent too. Which means when we get to the 21st, it's far from clear where things will. Here's the point. Nations rise, nations fall. God's in charge of it all. We believe in history. That's a key word in English. History means his story. It means it's actually going somewhere. It has a telos. It has an end. It may seem random. It may seem mysterious. We don't fully understand it. But the Bible says God is working his purposes out. In history, and we believe that as Christians. Thy will be done, thy kingdom come. The Lord's prayer is a prayer of faith in confidence that God is working his purposes out in history. And when the psalmist sees all these nations rising and falling and all that's happened to this point in Israel's history, it says, God's Lord of all of that. Therefore, he's bigger than that. He's Lord of all time. He's Lord of all nations. And finally, and I think most beautifully, in the middle of this tender Psalm, verse 4, he's the protector of his city. There's a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. Lots of people get upset about this initially because, of course, there is no river in Jerusalem. So, ha-ha, the psalmist got it wrong. Not, not so fast. It's a look back to Eden, for sure, and it's a look forward to paradise. And it's an image that you see in a lot of the Bible, like at the end of Ezekiel, where water is actually flowing out of the temple. And magnificent picture this. It's it's shallow near the temple, and the farther away you get from the temple, the deeper the water is. Makes you think of John 7 and Jesus saying to the woman at the well, rivers of living water will flow from you. He's talking about God's protection of his people. It goes all the way back to Exodus 3, right? You remember, take off the shoes from your feet for the place on which you're standing is holy ground. I will be your God and you will be my people. I have heard your cry. I've seen your suffering. I will come down and I will bring you up. And what the psalmist is saying is, and he's faithfully kept Israel and Jerusalem as his city the whole time. To do that through all that time is remarkable. There's a great image of protection that's inherent in this psalm. Verse 5 in particular. Look at the second half. God will help her when morning dawns. One of the translations says, God will help her right early. Now that's not because the psalmist was a southerner. It's, it's looking to the image of the deliverance of his nation in times of war where the night before the city is in huge peril from a foreign enemy and they get up the next morning and it's all dissipated and it's all safe and the threat is all gone. You do know that there are Bible stories about stuff like this, right? You don't need to turn to it, but if you're taking notes, I do want you to take it down. Ezekiel 36. This is a great image right at the heart of this psalm. Just one story of God's protection of his city. We're in the 8th century B.C. in the 700s, Hezekiah is king of Israel, and the Assyrians have, speaking of nations rising and falling, the Assyrians are up, right? Whoever talks about Assyria today? Nobody. Well, in the, in the 8th century B.C., they were right at the heart of history. Every day on the front page. This guy, uh, Sennacherib, this awesome commander of the army of Assyria, Sennacherib, 
he comes like a bulldozer in history, and he literally, he just wipes out everything in his path, including the northern kingdom of Israel. And the only thing that's left is the southern kingdom of Judah and the city of Jerusalem. And it says, in an extra-biblical reference in one place, it says, Jerusalem was surrounded like a bird in a cage. This is serious stuff. This is a big army. This is a big threat. And not only was uh, Sennacherib a brilliant military general, he was a brilliant general in the other parts of war that you have to wage. You do know that propaganda war is not a new idea, right? That when you wage a war, you have to wage it with people and with weapons, but you also have to wage it with war. Well, guess what? The Assyrians were brilliant propagandists. So with Jerusalem surrounded like a bird in a cage, out goes the Assyrian propaganda team. Rabshakeh. Listen to this. He's right on the edge of the city of Jerusalem. Everybody in the city is terrified. They're getting ready to go to bed, but not before the Assyrians get the last word. Say to King Hezekiah, Ezekiel 36, verse 4, Thus says the great king, the king of Assyria, On what do you trust this confidence of yours? Do you think that mere words or strategy and power are for war? In whom do you now trust Are you trusting in Egypt, that broken reed of a staff, which I've just taken care of? Where are all the other gods of all the nations? Do you really think your God is going to protect us? So bad does it get, so effective is the propaganda that the the Israelite Judah group that's out there uh, listening to all this propaganda says, can you guys not speak in Hebrew anymore? Because all the people who are overhearing it on the Israeli wall are starting to shake because it's so upsetting. You see what he's doing? He's out there saying, you really think Yahweh's going to, like, just so we're clear, I'm batting a thousand. Every nation I've wiped out hasn't done diddly. Their gods didn't help them. Their army didn't help them. Nobody's helped them. Your God isn't going to help you either. Ha! We, uh, as a family, grew up going to the summer home of the YMCA in the Adirondack Mountains in Lake George. It's another story for another time, but one of the things that happened at the summer home of the YMCA is there were various camps that came through weeks at a time, all sorts of things. And one, I kid you not, one of the camps that came through every summer was the group of uh, senior cheerleader trainers who train all the cheerleaders all over the United States. So this is the training of the trainers. And I kid you not, I still, I mean, I remember this like it was yesterday as an adolescent. You get up six o'clock in the morning, they're out there and they're doing their cheers. And the problem is they're doing their cheers. They're, they're half a mile from my house. They're doing their cheers so loud they just burn into your soul, right? You know? I mean, and the part, so you get stuck with, oh, you want, you want the cheers? Tough. You get them anyway, right? There they are. And the, the one I'll never forget in relation to this is that, cause some of them are so silly and dumb, but the problem is they stick in your mind, you know, like advertising slogans. I promise you this was really what they did. Our team is red hot. Your team is definitely not. They really, they did that 20 times like a liturgical chorus. It's ridiculous. It's also effective. Well, guess what Rabshakeh and company are doing out there in front of Israel? They're saying, our God and our army is red hot. Your God is definitely not. That doesn't feel very good. When the psalmist says, the nations rage, God utters his voice, and the earth melts. When, when the psalmist says, God will help them early in the morning, they went to bed terrified. 
Ah, yes, but then there's that next chapter. Hezekiah received the letter and read it and spread it before the Lord. And Hezekiah prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, God of hosts, God of Israel, who's enthroned above the cherubim, you are the God, you alone of all the kingdoms of the earth. You have made the heavens and the earth. Incline your ear and open your eyes and hear all the words of Sennacherib, who has sent his messengers, listen, to mock the living God. That's his prayer. And guess what? The Assyrians are wiped out the next morning. Boom. God helped her right early. Don't think that those people listening to this psalm didn't have that memory resonating in their ears. It's powerful. First, we are weak, we are vulnerable, we are needy. Second, God is great, God is powerful. God is awesome. God is majestic. God is holy. God is our protector. He's the Lord of history. He's the Lord of creation. You all with me so far? Now third. And then I'm done. It's a liturgical chorus. It's there twice so that we don't miss it because we're not very good at seeing things, which is why Clyde Kilby sent his students out there for an hour instead of just 10 minutes. But look at your text, verse 7, and then again in verse 11, just so we don't miss it. It's not just that we're weak. That's crucial. It's not just that God is awesome and great. That's also crucial and even more crucial. The third point puts the two together, and it says this. It says, you need to trust God. Because you're weak, you must trust God. Because God is great, you can trust God. But there's a third point, which is the ultimate encouragement to this psalm of trust, which is why it was so essential to Luther. And it's there in verse 7 and again in verse 11. Don't miss it because it's hiding. You get that phrase, the Lord of hosts. You get that phrase, the God of Jacob. You get that magnificent word fortress, which literally means an impregnable fort at the top of a peak of a high cliff where no enemy can get. It's that little phrase with us. It's not simply, brothers and sisters, that we're weak, as important it is for us to know that. It's not simply that God is great. It's important to know that. It's that we can trust him because he is Emmanuel, God with us. As Christians, as Trinitarian Christians, we believe that God is God the Father beyond us, God the Son alongside us, and God the Holy Spirit with us. Which means what? It means the God who made heaven and earth walks with me in the trenches of my life every single day. If you know that, you can trust him. One of the best stories I ever heard on this image of Emmanuel came from an experience I wasn't anticipating having. I had just gotten out of seminary in the late, feels like when dinosaurs roamed the earth, but we're in the, we're in the late 1980s and I was in Sumter and the next door Methodist church to us had a revival. We, we Anglicans don't have revivals. I was fairly intimidated by the revival, but I thought I ought to go and check it out. And so I slipped in the back, you know, just to kind of see what these things were made of. And they had this visitor from Ireland whose name was Reginald Mallet, and he gave this address. And I was just hiding in the back trying to see how the Methodists did things. And little did I realize at that time I heard the most powerful story I have ever heard about Emmanuel. And I wasn't ready for it, and I've never forgotten it. Here's this guy talking to these Methodists on this one Sunday night in the late 1980s, and he's telling them this exact thing. God is with you. Don't doubt it. Live like it. Believe it. Jesus is God with us. Emmanuel, God with us. 
And he starts telling us a story about his first day going to school because his dad was dying. So what was happening is his two siblings and him were in the hospital, and they each in their turn had the last conversation that they were ever going to have with their dad. Now, just on behalf of uh, our, my clerical colleagues, you, you do know about these conversations some, don't you? When people have conversations where they know the person's dying, they don't talk about the weather. They also don't talk about politics. But it is an interesting thing. If you know it's your last conversation, what do you talk about? And of all the things Reginald Mallett talked about with his dad in the last conversation he would ever have, he talked about his first day going to school, and his first grade uh, school was walking distance from his house. So they were talking about his first day going to school. It's just a memory that they shared together, and it was very moving. And as he's talking to his father, and he's left the house, and you're only six years old, you know, and the house goes out of... It's it's a traumatic experience, right? The first day away from home, you know, away from safety, away from the womb. And he's describing where he went as he walked, and he's he's having this conversation with his dad, and he's, and he has one of those experiences you have as a human being, which I know you've had, and it goes like this. You, all of a sudden you're, 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 you're in a situation and you get above the situation and you look at yourself in the situation and you say to yourself, something about this isn't right. So he's still talking to his dad and the whole time he starts thinking, there's something about this conversation that's really weird. And the more he has the conversation, the more weirded out he gets. And so he starts to try to figure out why is this conversation so odd? And he realizes that his father is finishing his sentences for him. So he keeps the conversation going. And he said, yeah, and then I turned here. And his father finished the sentence. And then I went over here. And his father finished the sentence. He said, and then I went here. And his father said, yeah, and then you thought about crossing the street. And he stopped his father dead. And he looked at him and he said, wait a minute. How do you know that? You were back at the house. And his dad, with tears in his eyes, said, it was your first day of school, and you were going away from home, and I was worried. So I followed you quietly and furtively the whole way. Boom. Here's a guy his whole life who thought about his first day going to school, and he realizes as an adult male he never actually understood what happened. And it all changed when he realized his dad was there. And it was never the same again. Now, here's the point, brothers and sisters. You can trust God. I've got to wrap it up, but I've got to apply it. I've got to go from preaching to meddling because it's no good talking about trusting God without putting you in the midst of the circumstances in which you find yourself. Uh, Think of my situation. I used to have a job. Uh, Chris has very kindly hired me on a part-time trial basis, which is nice because I would like to eat. Uh, but, 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 and, but, but one of the, one of the things, you know, just, just in terms of our humanity with one another, I have no clue what I'm doing in the future. I'm 61 years old. I would like to know, just saying. That's, that, that keeps me up at night when I watch the cobwebs get built in the corner of the bedroom up against the wall when I can't sleep. That's the kind of thing that is, the psalmist is talking about. When I, when I ask the question, here's the question. What does it mean for you to trust God in your life right now with what you're dealing with? That's the question. 
You can't, the psalm can't just stay on the text or back there in the 8th century. It's got to come right here, right now in the 21st century to you where you live and move and have your being. For me, it has to be in part, Lord, please lead us into the future you have for us and give us the patience to wait for it and the wisdom to know what it is. That's my prayer. That's where I live. That's not where you live. But I know this, brothers and sisters, I know this about you. I know that you have a stress point. I know you have a part of your life where you're worried, you're concerned, you can't see the future, and you need to trust God. And God's saying to you this morning, I not simply want you to trust me. I want you to trust me in this, in this moment right now. Last story, then I'm done. You can tell by my accent I didn't grow up in South Carolina. I... um Grew up in central New Jersey. My parents were both teachers, and I did a doctorate in Oxford. Our two youngest children were born there, and I've been an Anglophile all my life. I love England. I love stories about England. I'll be watching the soccer game this afternoon. You know who I'll be rooting for. This is a true story in the Blitz in London, one of my favorite periods of English history with Churchill and the like and the Nazis rising. This is when the Luftwaffe was coming across the English Channel at random intervals and bombing London, mostly at night. It was a terrible time. It was a traumatic time. This is just one night in one building in one situation. And here's what happened. Uh, everyone was given instructions, you know, about bomb shelters and all the things they had to do. It was a father and his son who was about six or seven they lived in an apartment. A bomb hit their building. You don't get any warning. You don't get a little news flash that says, by the way, bomb's about to hit your building. It just hit. So they ran outside. And as soon as they got outside, there was a huge hole not too far from the entrance where another bomb had fallen, and it was just this black hole. And because other bombs were falling behind him, the father and the son go out of the building, and the father jump instinctively jumps into the hole, in which case he disappears. And the son's six or seven years old, their bomb's dropping, and he's looking into a black hole. And dad says, jump. And the son says, I can't see you. And the father says this, but I can see you. Jump. That's, that's Psalm 46 in one story. Whatever is in your future, God's out there already. God can see you, and it's not about us seeing him because we walk by faith and not by sight. It's about him seeing us. A mighty fortress is our God, brothers and sisters. It's about us. We are weak and inadequate and dependent. It's about him. He's awesome and great, and he's with us, and we can trust him. In Jesus' name, amen.